So one of my favorite quotes, um, and I don't know if he originated this quote or not, but I, it was an interview with Lloyd Blankfein's CEO Goldman um, in the New York Times, basically saying, life is about making contracts with people, and the best thing you can do for your own career is be good for someone else's career. Hi, you're listening to the Launch with Sunyan podcast, where we help you define your inner champion. On today's episode, you'll hear from Brad Katsuyama. Brad is the CEO and co-founder of IEX, a new type of stock exchange. You might have read about Brad in Michael Lewis's book Flash Boys. Listen for Brad's insights on the value of teamwork and the importance of prioritizing your values. Enjoy. Hi, Brad. So let's start with a question that helps the listeners get to know you real fast. Fill in this blank. If I really know you, I would know. If you really knew me, you would know I'm an accidental entrepreneur. <laughs> okay, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about what that means. I had only worked uh, before starting IEX um, six years ago. I had only ever worked at one company uh, my entire life. I was an intern at the World Bank of Canada. I worked there for 12 years, um, and I was just generally content. It, it, it never dawned on me that I wanted to start my own company. Mm. And in many ways, I kind of just, it was a series of decisions where I stumbled into this position I'm in, and uh, I don't think I ever would have predicted that this would be where I am in life. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, are predestined to, to do certain things. I, I don't think that was the case with me. So a lot of people um, in college or in high school think about life as a series of plants. So this idea of being an accidental anything <laughs> yeah. is a very foreign idea. Kind of. And yeah. I would imagine for you too, you know, it is. So how did you embrace it? I think it's it, it's a series of decisions. I think it starts with um, a value set I've kind of had since I was a kid um, where it's about honesty and, and integrity and um, things that were important to me. Um, the way that translated into my business career is just seeking out people and seeking out opportunities that I felt in a way aligned with that. Um, working at a bank during the financial crisis, I felt that was one moment in time where I think I was ready just to pack up and, and walk away. Mm. Uh, even though the World Bank of Canada didn't really have a lot to do with it, I think they were 55th in the list of write-downs. So they, they didn't really, their subprime mortgages don't exist in Canada. Um, but just finance in general, I think, had created this um, feeling in the pit of my stomach. I was ready to walk away until we, you know, in a way discovered what was happening in the stock market and that it needed to be solved. So I think the only thing that really set me up for, for making that leap was just, um, in a way, having a value set that I just couldn't see what was happening and just do nothing about it. Um, that was one of the you know, kind of the realizations I had was that if, if we didn't try to do something about what we had discovered, that, you know, nothing would probably be done. So for the listeners who may not be as familiar with IEX, mm-hmm. what did you discover and what does how does IEX solve that problem? Sure. So so I was running a, a trading group at the Royal Bank of Canada, Global Electronic Sales and Trading. It's a fancy title just to say we built algorithms um, with computer developers, network engineers to help traders trade. Trading in the markets, stock market is very automated. No trading happens on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. It's all about servers and data centers and uh, and computers 
And we had discovered that uh, stock exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ had special relationships with this group of traders called high-frequency traders. They, they were um, exchanges were selling them faster data and faster access than regular investors, which gave them ability essentially to trade knowing the results of the horse race while some people still think the race is happening. Um, that to me was unbelievable given the importance of the stock market. And as you started to uncover and turn more and more things over, you realize that the system was designed in, in, in essence to disadvantage the long-term investor. And these are people's retirements and these are pensions. And um, in many ways, it, it just became this problem that, um, you know, my team and I became very dedicated to solving. And I think that um, we got lucky. Life, life in many ways has a lot to do, do with luck. Um, I think most people who think otherwise probably think a little bit too much of themselves. I mean, I, I'm one of the luckiest people out there. Michael Lewis, who was at the time my favorite author, Moneyball and Blindside, Liar's mm-hmm. Poker, Big Short, uh, kind of like, in a way, found our, our story um, and wrote a book called Flash Boys. And it was profiled on 60 Minutes, and that kind of brought this, you know, kind of what we call market microstructure. Like, it's like the deep plumbing of the stock market. It brought this issue that um, not a lot of people knew about to kind of national attention. Um, I think without Michael Lewis, I'm not sitting here today. Because there, there's, there's a lot of people who, who don't want the stock market to be fair. Um, those who benefit the most from that unfairness clearly want that to continue. And I think that... Um, Michael Lewis, in a way, brought such attention to what we were doing, uh, it just couldn't be ignored or couldn't be kind of like, you know, um, squashed. So, you know, there's this idea, you said, it was interesting you said that you're lucky, but I also believe in being prepared for luck or planning right. for luck. And opportunities are around us each time, all mm-hmm. the time. However, what made you prepare was you had a story, you had a compelling why Mm-hmm. That drove Michael Lewis to say, let me write about this. Yeah. And you're, you could understand, I mean, if our listeners were here and meeting you, they would feel your authenticity and your desire to make a positive impact on the world. And those things are compelling. What was interesting is that when we first saw this issue um, at RBC, I mean, it was this kind of turning point moment where we discovered this issue. We ran a series of tests to validate whether high-speed traders were able essentially to trade ahead of regular investors. Uh, and those tests came back positive, meaning that this this does exist in the market. And I remember this moment where um, I came home that night, I was talking to my wife, I'm like, this is actually happening, we tested it, it's true. And, and thinking like we had just discovered something, and in reality, it kind of dawned on me pretty quickly, we're not the first to discover this at all. We're, I don't think we're 10th or 15th. Because everyone else who figured out what was going on just became a part of the problem. Mm. That's the way to make money. That was the easiest way to make money. So being faced with this decision about what do you do with this information, we just decided to do something different. So RVC was out there first talking about the issues. The the problem was that customers, big mutual funds, they, they don't just trade with one bank. They trade with a bunch of banks for a variety of reasons. Um, which meant that RBC could only solve the problem for people who traded with RBC. Um, being a stock exchange was kind of the way to solve the entire 
problem. Um, Michael Lewis said this to me point blank. We, we quit very high-paying jobs to start IEX and took a huge amount of risk. He said, if you hadn't have quit your job, I wouldn't have found this story interesting. He's like, the fact that, that you were willing to kind of walk away from everything and, and a group of people were willing to walk away kind of from everything that you had built and, and all the money and things that, that uh, you know, that we were making, that made the story worth telling. Um, so I guess it's, in a way, it's lucky we found him, but in, in another way, you know, we had already at that point done, done, done some pretty you were, crazy things. You were prepared for <laughs> luck. And what right. I love about that story is, you know, people think about risk. Everything we do, we, we frame it as risk and rewards. Mm-hmm. And an idea I always play with is when you are launching, like launching IEX, and you're mm-hmm. launching in pursuit of becoming your best self, mm-hmm. There's actually very little risk, right? Yeah. Long term, we're looking long term versus short term. Long term, there's not very little risk because it's aligned yeah. with who you are. If you were thinking about your end goal in life is just to make as much money as possible, yeah. you take that information, you go do what everyone else did. Yeah. But you wanted to, you wanted to do something different with that I, information. I think, I think one thing that's really important for people to understand when they measure risk reward, then I think the natural bias is to think of risk through a very short-term lens. How is this going to affect me tomorrow or this year? Um, and it's hard to measure reward under a very short time horizon as well, because again, if you're thinking about starting a company, that first year is going to be brutal. It's more about the long-term. What are you yes. trying to achieve long-term? And I think one thing that helped me make the decision to, to leave my job and start IEX was, was trying to assess what is the risk long-term mm. to try to balance the horizon of, of risk reward as I thought about it. And the long-term risks weren't actually that as great as it might seem. Um, I had never identified personally with, with finance or with trading. So if I ended up working in a different industry, um, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. And I think that what I had confidence in was my ability to find a job if this didn't work. Um, I told my wife, you know, we'll move somewhere with a higher quality of life um, if this doesn't work for our family. My second son was born three days after I started IEX. Oh, my goodness. With, yeah, with, <laughs> with, I say I. We started IEX. There, there was a number of co-founders. Um, and I just said, it's, it, this is this is my last shot in finance. And if I if it doesn't work, um, you have my, you know, my commitment to just move on, do something else and you know, find a different quality of life. And, and I, I had confidence in my ability to, to do that, which means that the long-term risk wasn't that high. I think I'd be happy no matter what. Um, and when I measured that risk against, if you, you say short-term risk, it's, oh, I'm leaving my job and, you know, I have a very, you know, kind of highly regarded job and all the money and all, like, that's that's very short-term. All the status symbols, right? Yeah, right. It's, 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 these are these are material things that are that are extremely short-term in nature. So I think, Long-term risk against long-term reward is a much better way to view huge life decisions. And something I hear in your stories is it wasn't just you alone. You were talking with your wife. You were, you know, I had met your brother, Craig, yeah. who's now with the company. You have a tribe. You know, something I think about is a tribe of people right. who actually share and remind you of those values and can reaffirm that yeah. this is actually you and and this is something that's worth believing in and not only yeah. do they want to 
help support you in that. Some of them even came aboard and joined you yeah. and left their high-paying jobs yeah. to do yeah. it. What's interesting about IEX is the, there was the opportunity to solve, solve this, and the other issue is that RBC had a lot of success with customers as a result of finding this and educating them and building products to solve it. And uh, we went from number 19 to number one mm. ranking in U.S. electronic trading products. And um, it's like winning the Super Bowl, um, <laughs> a complete rebuild, winning the Super Bowl. And then all of a sudden, everyone's a free agent. The value of everyone on our team went up. So I was getting job offers to work at other banks, and my team was getting job offers to work at other banks. And starting our own company was, was also a way to keep our team together. Our team has such incredible chemistry and respect and trust with each other. Um, you know, I'm very indebted that they decided to follow, you know, this path because, again, we, we've, we've been through a lot of ups and downs as a team, but you don't have to worry about, do I trust this person? Do I trust their judgment? We, it's always keeping that team together, I think, was, a, was another really important reason um, to start IEX because if we had decided to continue work in the industry at banks, then everyone would have ended up in, in different places. And the wisdom it took to recognize that, you know, it, it goes back to all these intangible value sets Yeah. Uh, to say that teamwork, that the, the uh, invaluable, priceless asset of trust. Right. That's something most people don't think about. Yeah. You know, when you're getting these competing offers, right. it, it's, they're thinking about here's a tangible, here's a measurable number. Yeah. But you recognized that trust and that value in keeping you – guys excited I about think work. One interesting part is that um, throughout my entire career I've just tried to build relationships and and uh, ones where people trust me and trust my intentions and um, my motivations and what I'm trying to do and, and I think you know there's a group of us who went from RBC to IEX where these people were taking the same or possibly greater risks than I was taking um, some of them had just been promoted to managing director and just started to make money. And I, I had had a, a few years at wow. least of making some good money. Um, so, so you could even say that their risk was greater than mine. Um, and for them to kind of, you know, have the belief in me and, and this and the rest of the team. One really funny story is that, um, so I'm talking to my wife, we're talking about me leaving RBC and she's like, well, what's the chance that this idea that you have is going to work? And I said, <laughs> Honestly, I go, it's probably like 25% chance. But I, go, but, I said, but I think our team will figure it out. So mm. this exact idea to this one, and it, it didn't end up being anything like what we are now, but the one idea we were holding on to at that moment, I'm like, I'm just not sure of it. But I, I feel like our team will figure it out. So she's like, you better tell like the other people that 25% chance. So I said, okay, so. I go into work the next day and I, I get, so Rob Parks, our CTO, Ronan, uh, was, is it, was, uh, our chief strategy officer and John Schwal was our COO. And I said to them, I said, okay, write on a piece of paper, what percent chance you think this idea of this ex particular exchange has of working? I was the highest at 25%. Oh my God. <laughs> and yet they believed oh, yeah. because of the team. Because of the team. We oh. thought we'd figure it out. So it's kind of like, at that point, I guess the great part about that is that it's foolish to think that it's all going to go the way you think it's going to go. Um, partly because you don't know what you don't know and just, that's just the way life works. Yes. I think, uh, we had a trust that we would be able to handle whatever and figure it. And that's exactly what ended up happening. The idea that we had would not have worked. That 25 was wrong. 
Um, but we we pivoted pretty early. We're a group that doesn't you know won't hang on to an idea that we think is the wrong one. So we just had a lot of trust in each other that we'd figure it out. I I love that because in the in the sports world that I deal with, there's this quote that we say.、Uh, When you have chemistry and trust on the team, it's like having another superstar. And、mm-hmm. even though that idea end up not working, the over the outcomes you're trying to achieve through now the, the mission, the、yeah. ideas, objectives of IEX, which is actually building trust in the financial markets、yeah. again, that having that superstar that that is the team and trust、yeah. actually hedges the risk significantly. Yes,、yeah. what an awesome example. Yeah, it's it, it's we're fortunate to have worked together and kind of gone through this journey together, and I think that you know that that trust between us is 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 really important. So I think that you need a foundation to take a big risk.、Mm-hmm. Um, part of the long term reward was to continue to work with people I respected and trusted, and I think that、um, the thing that would have prevented me from going is just viewing risk through a short term lens.、Um, As opposed to a long-term one. So your team didn't stay small. It grew and grew, and now you're something I heard from Gerald Nam, who who's your chief culture and talent、mm-hmm. officer, is that you are up to a point where you now even have a organizational health committee. Yeah. yeah. So as you're expanding your team, yeah. What do you look for in new team members? What qualities? What attributes? Beyond just, of course, competence and smarts. Right. So I think、uh, integrity is really, really important.、Um, you know, it's one of the key values at at IEX. Act with integrity, and I think that because I think our our brand is so important to us, our culture is so important to us.、Um, that's one aspect, and you don't get it right every single time. People are very good at interviewing,、um, but I think that ends up becoming a, a core piece of of who we are.、Um, work ethic, I think, is important if you want to keep your team. Small and um, efficient. Um, you want people to know that the person next to them is working just as hard as they are. So, I think work ethic is really important. And, and for me personally, I love curiosity. I love people who just ask questions, who absorb information, who who find things out. Because essentially, it's those、uh, work ethic and curiosity are like a lethal combination of attributes. Because that's the kind of person that's going to figure the next thing out.、Mm. They're going to see you around the corner when when you're not seen around the corner, and I think that adds a tremendous amount of value、um, to the team. Rather than someone just coming in every day doing, you know, checking in and checking out, it's that desire to just want to learn constantly.、Um, you know, so we we look for those, and I think that it's it's some of it's you know harder to spot than than others, but for me, those are kind of the The and by the way, on the work ethic part, I knowing you and IEX, you don't mean working 24/7 as the definition of work ethic. Yeah. It's something different because you actually make your t- staff, your entire team, each one have a mandatory family day. Absolutely. So, yeah. So define work ethic. So I think work ethic is about working smart, knowing when if the team's counting on you, you know, you may have to you may have to put in some extra time. Um, and then to be smart about it, when when it's a, a lull period, you can take time off and you can try to keep the right balance. I think that balance is is critical、um, to kind of fulfilled employees, which end up doing much better work than unfulfilled employees. <laughs> and I think 
you know, it's kind of what, one thing that I never understood about like the investment banking culture is this notion of putting in hours. Um, you know, people are just showing up because they have to. And I think it's what we're trying to do is, is say you have a role. The company counts on you to fulfill that role. And um, it's kind of up to the person to ensure that they, they maintain balance. And, you know, family day is one thing where we, 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 we're, cert- we're talking to our employees a lot in terms of the culture. Are we building it correctly? And um, the number one value at our company is family, um, which is awesome. I have, I have you know, a seven, five-year-old sons and a two-year-old daughter. So family's you know, the most important thing to me. Um, but when you when you hear back from your company that family is the number one value, um, you know you have to respond in some kind of way that that's different. So we 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 have a family day, a mandatory family day, um, where you have to take you get an extra day off, um, and you have to spend it with your family, and you have to document it. You have to show <laughs> a newspaper with a date. Here's my date. Here's it's what so metrics oriented. Yeah. <laughs> And you send a note back to the, the, the company and say, here's what I did on my family day. So, you know, sometimes people are, are shamed in, when they take vacation or like this is one where I like when people take time off um, and who are, and we vote on whoever seemed to have the most fun or most productive <laughs> family day and then they get two the next year. So uh, we just try to, to do interesting things. But I think working smart and working long hours are two dramatically different things. And yes. I think. Working smart lets you have a, a work-life balance that probably makes you more productive, happier, more fulfilled, and you have a greater impact on, on culture and our company than someone who's just burning hours at the office, um, you know, mindlessly. It's just, that's just not, not worth it. It's measuring output versus input. And then the other thing is, because this podcast is really about how do you help champions to keep on winning, this learning mindset. Absolutely. You know, that's how, because you and I know, you succeed the first time, that's hard. To continue that success, you have to do things differently. You have yeah. to innovate. And it's really hard, too, because when, when you're trying to attract really bright people, um, sometimes they're afraid to admit they don't know something. Mm. And so I try to set the tone from the top. I, I think I'm, I'm fairly intelligent, but a lot of times I'll say, I don't understand that. Can you repeat that? And I want people to know that it's okay to to admit that you don't know, you know, frankly, what you don't know. I think, I think people not speaking up, um, out of fear for, oh, I, people will think I'm less intelligent, et cetera. Like you want to create that culture where it's okay to say, I don't understand that. Or it's okay to say, can you tell me more about that? Um, we try to do that a lot. And it goes back to team. You know, you don't have to know, but together the team can figure it out. Absolutely. Team, team, team. That's right. And you I know? think that when you create this culture of kind of questioning and be, it's, it's okay to ask, um, everyone on the team is going to improve. You don't have people kind of afraid to speak up and they're acting with, you know, bits and pieces of information and not getting the full picture. Right? You, you know, one, one, one element of, you know, trying to create a transparent culture is to give people as much access to information as possible so that they can create the most well-rounded view of of any situation. And I think that willingness to um, say, I don't know, and creating that level of vulnerability, which actually builds trust as well, it's also creating a culture of courage. Because then it's easier to call each other out on when people are acting, behaviors are acting out of alignment right. with the type of culture values you Absolutely. have in your company. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, you want to create 
kind of a, a respectful, constructive workplace. Um, it's a hard balance because things get personal quickly, and I think it's it's our job, um, kind of as leaders of the company, to set that tone where um, anyone can challenge me as long as they do it in a, res- in a respectful way. I'll change my opinion on a dime if you have better information or a better reason than I do. And I think that I'm willing to do that. Other people at the company need to be willing to do that as well. But you, you kind of you have to you have to set that tone from the top so people understand that it's okay. That's awesome. So let's talk about how do you become you? Uh, when you look back at your high school or college years, what were some of the things that you did to prepare you for this type of mindset? Right. Um, I, I mean, I spent, I think balance is an important kind of, you know, element to my life. It's always been that way. Um, I played I played football in college um, and just trying to balance playing, you know, university sports and and I was on an I was on an academic scholarship and trying to balance those um, it just requires a lot of in a way planning thinking ahead ensuring that you're um, prioritizing you know I've had the same group of friends since I was five years old so kind of I I've built very trusting relationships and I understand what's required of me to keep those going and, and I understand my expectations of them to keep that going and I think um, you know Looking at building healthy relationships, um, and it sounds like you're you're you trained yourself to look at the long game. You know that's a consistent part in your story. It's long term, long yeah. game relationships are a long term thing. Absolutely. You know, rather than tra- relational, rather than transactional. Yeah. So it, it, it's ironic because I because I was a trader for a long time. <laughs> you know, it's, what's funny is that I, I think my biggest challenge transitioning from trading to being the CEO of a company is that there was this push and pull of, I've always viewed things as kind of longer term and, and, and making decisions that I thought were in you know my best interest or my family's best interest. Um, and then every day I'm trying to you know manage a daily P&L. Um, that, that was always kind of tough. And I think now that I'm a, you know, the CEO of a company, it's, I find myself stopping an overreaction or stopping this instinctual response and trying to be more patient. Mm. Um, you know, my word for this year is patience (laughs) where I I feel like, you know, it's, I'm always learning. I understand, um, trading has created habits that, that contradict with my view of what it means to be a CEO, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not infallible from violating my own, my own rules. It's all right. Yeah, we, so. we, isn't it wonderful? We are not yet whom we shall become. Yeah. Um, yeah. And therefore, there's always, we can change those habits. And, you know? and I think it's important to recognize what those are. Yeah. Um, and just being honest with yourself, because that that's what allows you, that recognition is what allows you to get better. Yes. Um. So I, you know, I'm always kind of looking, looking for ways that I can can improve. And also, in, an outside look into you and and insights. Yeah, Fla- Flash Boys <laughs> helped a lot. I've never spent more time talking about myself and my own decisions. I probably could not have functionally got through this podcast if Michael Lewis hadn't spent an hour and a half, a year and a half, probing my decisions and why I thought what I thought and. 
it gave me an incredible amount of retrospection um, because I never really thought a lot about why I did what I did. And he forced me to do that. And it's something that I would recommend to anybody at any stage in their career, early, long, middle of it. Um, because getting a better sense of yourself will help you improve. It'll help you understand your weaknesses and strengths. And um, I would just go from thing to thing to the next thing. Okay, that's done. Okay, let's go to the next thing. And he forced me to look backwards. And, and that's become incredibly, uh, in, it, it was insightful and it, it's helped me a lot as a, as a person, as a leader. I am big on 360 interviews to give that insight and also the power of reflection and introspection and retrospection. And actually one of the things that I, one of the feedback I get a lot from these type of interviews is it's a chance in a busy, you know, time-constrained world. Yeah. For the interviewee to stop, pause, and have that reflection. Absolutely. My, I work now, so obviously Michael Lewis was a, was a lucky uh, thing in my life. Um, you know, I know you do coaching. Um, I have an executive coach. Having someone that you can talk to and who can challenge you and, and push you in that way, um, you know, I think is critical to to success. Yes. Um, because they're going to ask you questions you would never ask of yourself, and they're going to challenge you in a way that you would never challenge yourself. It's just people are designed to constantly, um, and, and sometimes if you're constantly critiquing yourself, that's not healthy either. So it's this periodic kind of it's perspective. awakening. Yeah. It's perspective of both the wins and the losses Absolutely. and the learnings from both. That's right. So if you were going to tell, uh, give advice to a 20-year-old Brad Katsuyama, <laughs> what advice would you give? I think, I mean, I think what we talked about earlier about life is about choices and all those choices will have risks and rewards. And just to ensure that you're making the right decisions, balance the time horizon on each side. Um, if the reward is short term, then it's okay to evaluate it against short term risks. But if the value is long term, if the reward is a long term goal, you have to look at it through the lens of long term risks to make it to make the best decision you can. Um, there have been so many different decisions in my life that I've just been fortunate enough to have thought about the long term. Um, and, and, and that's helped me make choices that, you know, I think have guided my life. And I think that that's, that's probably the best advice I could give. Just try to measure risk reward on the right horizon. Um, yeah, start starting. Frankly, it's it's you know with it, it starts early in life. Um, there were moments where I had friends that were doing something that you know I chose not to do. It turns out to you know in in when I was coming out of college, the job at RBC was the lowest paying job I was offered, but I felt um, kind of compelled by 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 trading and finance and the people that work there that. This was an industry that was undergoing significant change and, and that I would be on the front end of that change. This was kind of right around the time where computers and algorithms, not that I was a computer programmer, but that there are ways to automate trading. And I felt I was more on the front side of that wave than on the back side, which was, you know, phone and, and you know, taking people out for steak dinners and things like that, which didn't really trust me that much. Um, 
yeah, it's just it's guided kind of every step along the way for me. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you. As you think about today's podcast, here's something to reflect on. Brad had shared his experience of taking a risk to improve what he saw as a flawed system. So here's an idea for you to think about: think of a situation in your life where things can't be improved. Can taking a calculated risk like Brad did lead to worthy rewards? That's it for today's episode. Special thanks to Tanya Yerden and Rich Fargo for producing this episode, and Lucas Tischler for the music. See you again soon.